new format, we dive right in to the place where we've left off in our study here. Now we will be turning to Genesis 39 to pick up the story of our great, as he's called, patriarch, uh, Joseph. And so we're <laughs> going to get started uh, now uh, with this, the map, not the map, the chart. I'm used to saying map because that's what we do every Sunday morning, just about. <clears throat> so after the fall of man, that uh, one disobedience that brought sin into the world and death to us all because all have sinned, God was quick to bring some good news. Right there, the scene of the crime, as I like to call it. And so a divine conqueror, he told the enemy, would come one day, would be born into the world through a womb of a virgin for the purpose of defeating the devil and his work, paying for sins, destroying death, and reconciling us back to God our Father. So in, uh, and so 12 chapters in, we come to this family through whom the Savior would come. This is an important family. It's Israel, the children of Israel, uh, quite literally the children of Jacob. Israel is his uh, name that God gave him. And he will have 12 sons and they will head up the uh, states of the nation. And he tells Abraham there in Genesis 12, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, even though you can't have children. It's going to be a supernatural thing. And the nation will have a supernatural origin, Israel. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, why did he say that? He's saying, because through this family that you're looking at there, the Savior, the divine Son of God would come. And in this God-man, the man part is blood-connected. He is the Savior is related as great-great-grandson to Abraham. And he's going to come through Isaac, he's going to come through Jacob, and he's going to come from Judah. And uh, that is an amazing thing. And so that is why the, the uh, last uh, two-thirds of the book of Genesis is all about the family of origin through whom Jesus would come and lay down his life, pay for the sins of the world, and um, granting us a way back uh, to the Father. And so now, as I mentioned last time, as we get underway now, while he's introducing us to the family, he's also telling us the story of the gospel. And it's called prophetic foreshadowing. And, and that there are hints and kind of similarities about these um, patriarchs' lives uh, that tell us all about the life of Jesus and the work he would do on the cross. And no one does that better than Joseph. If you put that chart back up one more time, this is the man, Joseph. It's all for, for what is it, 14 chapters, the remaining 14 chapters of Genesis. It's all about Joseph because Joseph, more than anybody in the entire Old Testament, tells the story over and over again of the gospel, 
what Jesus is like, what Jesus will do, how Jesus will be humbled unto death and then exalted to the highest place for the saving of many lives. And so that is what we're talking about here. Uh, Joseph's story began last time in Genesis 37. Genesis 38 is a, it digresses a bit from Joseph's life, so we are going to go straight to where it picks up in chapter 39. This is, after all, a series on the life of Joseph. And so, uh, context, in case you weren't here last week. How many of you were not here last week? You know what I always ask after that, right? Where were you? Come on. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so, the context is this. Joseph has 11 brothers, as you saw, as you see. Now, we don't need that chart anymore. Thank you, Spencer. And um, most of those, if, if not all of them, are, are jealous and hostile uh, toward Joseph because he has a special uh, love with his father, Jacob. Uh, the dream that God gave to Joseph didn't uh, really help matters. The dream uh, that he told his brothers and his parents uh, that he would one day be exalted over them, uh, even mom and dad. And so uh, with that, there was a conspiracy to commit murder, and the thug brothers ended up uh, selling him uh, into slavery. And now Joseph has been shackled and chained He's uh, 17, 18 years old. He's loaded onto a wagon there in the wilderness and shipped off with some vagabond merchants who are heading south to Egypt. They pay 20 shekels of silver for Joseph. They've kidnapped him. These are slave traders. And now they're going to uh, sell him to somebody in Egypt. Let's see how that goes. Verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, these are the terrorists of the Old Testament, who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left Joseph in he, so he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in, car, in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Let's pause there. Joseph finds fever. He's going to find a lot more than that, as we see. Some of you know the story. But note this, it's the same favor that uh, has been shown to him uh, back in happier times. God's favor seems to be a constant with this young man. And why is that? That is because Joseph behaves in the same way that promotes the favor of God, if we can put it that way. Joseph just loves 
and trust God, come what may. Happy times, sad times. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. You know how it goes. So he's determined to please God in everything he does. At home, when it's all good. At work, when it's not. When his brothers are persecuting him. Or in a field, when they're trying to kill him. Or in chains, when he's being carried off to Egypt. Or there in the household of Potiphar. The word integrity comes from integer. Integer is a whole number. And so the idea behind integrity is wholeness. In that every part of you sold out to God. Uh, There's no parts, you know, there's no uh, conditions with you. When I'm comfortable, I'll praise you. When things are going sideways, you won't be seeing me at church. I've got to work through some issues, okay? That's not having integrity toward the Lord. And so Joseph is, when his heart is happy, when his heart is hurting, God is the same and worthy of his obedience and love and trust. Uh, That's the kind of life that God really likes to bless. And so he's living out that truth. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This New Testament truth uh, is in Joseph's Old Testament heart. First verse, the favor. When does it start? It starts with Potiphar's God-prompt interest in a Hebrew slave. Now, Joseph is on the auctioning block there, and get this, one of the most prominent, influential, affluent, well-connected men in the nation just happened to need a slave, just happened to be looking at that marketplace on that day, just happened to turn left and see him and catch him uh, there in his uh, uh, sight. And he just happens to, to take special interest. Uh, Joseph is young, he's strong, and he's attractive. The Bible calls him all of those things. And he has shiny eyes because he loves God. And uh, he has a countenance that says so. And so the Holy Spirit says to the captain of uh, Pharaoh's guard, that's the guy you want. Purchase him. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit works, and and people don't even know it's the Holy Spirit. So the readers are privy to the beginning of the story, and our curiosity is piqued. I mean, we've heard about the dream, and we expect that that came from God, and so we're wondering how God is going to rescue and vindicate and exalt this guy. We're rooting for him. So, But how in the world is he going to pull this up? He's arriving in chains as a slave. God's going to have to pull some amazing strings, uh, and here we go. (laughs) It's already in verse 1. Potiphar, his name is a shout-out to the sun god, Re, R-E. He's chief of police. He's uh, the captain of the secret service that surrounds the king. Pharaoh might as well be emperor or king. That's how you must picture him. Uh, By the world standard, this captain... Uh, Potiphar is an awesome dude. He's, uh, he's got an incredible resume to be in that position. He's a special forces <clears throat> kind of man. 
proven character, strength, uh, warrior spirit, skill, and ability. And apparently there, the household or slash headquarters for the Secret Service, Pharaoh's inner circle, they need a servant boy. They need someone to clean toilets and to take out the trash and to muck out the stalls and fetch them a lemonade, the hot sun there in Egypt. And God has something else in mind. Yeah, he's going to teach Joseph humility. He's 17. To get a dream like that, you know he struggles with a little bit of pride, probably a little bit of cockiness, right? Well, you know, you can only be cocky so long while you're cleaning the restrooms. <laughs> and uh, so Joseph's attitude, though, is going to make all the difference in the world. So nobody likes to do the dirty work, but he's going to be the best janitor the world has ever seen. He can make a bed like a Marine. He can do dishes like mom. <laughs> Who could do dishes like a woman? I don't know. I don't know. Some of you guys maybe say, I can do dishes, but I don't know. Because <clears throat> Joseph, he does his work not unto earthly masters, but unto the Lord, Colossians 3 and 23. He never took a job where he said, I'm trying to please the, that guy over there. Never. He always took a job and said, oh, I've got to show you how hard I can work because I'm doing my work not for him. I'm doing it for you. That's the secret there, right there. So in every task, he's faithful, he's prompt, he's on time, heartfelt thoroughness, 100% at everything. No matter what, so what? I'm, I'm in a place I shouldn't be and there's been a terrible injustice and my heart is grieving and I'm homesick. And I can't believe that he let this happen to me. Oh no, it's not going to affect my work unto you, God. Because my life changes and I go high and low, but you remain the same. True, worthy of my praise, worthy of my trust, worthy of my obedience. And so that's what it was. You've heard what a momism is, right? <laughs> Something mom always used to say. And uh, some of your moms would say this. No, do it the right way. All the way and in a happy way. Joseph nailed all three all the time because he loved the Lord, wants to please him. Now, if anybody had a reason to be dragging his heels and have an attitude of resentment, all these people tell me what to do. Did I ask to be here? I shouldn't be here. Nursing a grudge, expressing bitter bitterness on the, in the job performance. You know, it could have been him, but he made some choices. He didn't want to fall short of the grace of God, quoting Hebrews 12 and verse 15. And he didn't let a bitter root spring up cause trouble to everybody around him and defile many. Hebrews 12, 15. He made a choice. We have choices. We're either going to let this really bug us and we're going to concentrate on it or we're going to dwell on whatever things are right and true and noble and excellent and worthy of praise. Then he says, and then the God of peace will be with you. You can't expect the God of peace to be with you while you're counting all of the bad things instead of your blessings, see. So he's got an attitude that, job just, that God just can't uh, simply resist uh, blessing. 
Now, moving on here, the Lord is with Joseph twice. There, verse 2, of course he's with us, but that just means he is just touching everything uh, in front of Joseph and making him successful and effective. And then in verse 3, the Lord gave Joseph success in everything he touches. Uh, Joseph finds favor with his boss, verse 4. And God caused Potiphar to appreciate this young man and to take a special liking to him and promotes him. And it says to him, when he sees his handiwork and what kind of man he is, he says, I could use a personal assistant like you. Verse 4, God is speaking when he blesses the Christian who especially responds faithfully under pain and injustice. God is sending a message to Joseph, I am still with you. Joseph could look around, Joseph could figure out, what did I just get promoted and I'm his personal assistant? God, you're not done with me yet. You're for me, you're with me. And then he's sending a message to Potiphar by blessing everything in Potiphar's house. Why? You've made the right decision. Stand with this guy. Because it'll be to your benefit to stand with my man. Ah. And he's also sending a message to everyone in the household who's watching. What is going on? This is just not like, oh, he does a good job. No. This is supernatural wow stuff. Like crazy, eye-opening, jaw-dropping stuff. Because God is making a statement. And he wants those people to see. Follow Joseph's God and have a similar blessing, you see. So Joseph is exalted. He's got the gift. The New Testament calls it the gift of administration. This guy's got that (laughs) for sure. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and Romans 12 and verse 8. The King James calls it governance or leadership. It's a team gift because when somebody on the team has that gift, everything's going to be working toward the objective with effectiveness, efficiency, and effectiveness. Effectiveness, there's, a, there's another one in there. It's just going to really uh, hum like a finely oiled machine. Now, what did that look like? Well, Joseph could see what was weak and flawed in the systems. The things that were a waste of time and resources. He knew which person should be working what job. Organizations don't always do that. And so he said, you know, did you ever think of putting that guy over there? And oh, no, 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 don't put that guy with that guy. That's a disaster. Put this man with this coworker. You see? So that's what he was doing. And he saw better ways of training and equipping and troubleshooting problem areas. And what does the Bible say? Proverbs 18 says this. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. It's exactly what we're seeing here. And it won't stop here all through Joseph's life. The man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. Now everything's going great because verse 3 said Joseph caught the eye of Potiphar. And Potiphar liked what he saw. But he's not the only one. Verse 7. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while his master's wife took notice also of Joseph and said, 
let's just get to the point. <laughs> Come to bed with me. Now, that's a summation of a lot of other words. <laughs> All right. Verse 8. But he refused. And that's just really smart. You know, what a great strategy when you're tempted. Just refuse. With me in charge, he tells her, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one's greater in this entire house than me. My master did that. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Whoa, we all thought you were going to go say Potiphar there, sir. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, 11 years, up to 11 years, he refused to go to bed with her or even be near her. All right, let's talk about this. It's important. <clears throat> so, you know, he, he, he finds favor and he also finds temptation, or should we say temptation finds Joseph, as it always seems to do. Uh, every believer's heart in prayer is, Lord, lead me not into temptation, uh, and keep my, uh, meaning, keep my path uh, from things that are, will stumble me, might bring moral compromise, uh, which of course God is always happy to do, though testings must come, as we all know. Uh, in this sin-laden world, filled with sinful people like us, Temptation to do wrong is at every turn. So there's no such thing as a temptation-free path, period. Pray. <laughs> but no, it's just around the corner, because it always is. Now, what's Mrs. Potiphar's problem? Well, maybe she's lonely. Her husband's consumed by his work, question mark. But sadly, the Bible outs her and says, actually, his work is a lot lighter now he doesn't do much because Joseph runs the entire household. He doesn't concern himself with anything except what's for dinner. That's what the Bible says. And so you can't be saying, my husband's, you know, too busy for me, you know. So, yeah. She, well, what's her problem? She, she doesn't have a conscience and, she, and, and she's bereft of character. She's godless, godless. She's less God, <laughs> right? She's got years of self-indulgent living where all, all that matters is her, what she wants, right? Proverbs says this about a woman like her. The woman named Folly is brazen. She's ignorant and doesn't even know it. She sits at the doorway of the heights overlooking the city. She calls out to men going by or minding their own business. Come in with me, she urges the simple, simple-minded. To those who lack good judgment, she says, stolen water is refreshing. Food eaten in secret tastes the best. But little do they know that the dead are there. Her guests are in the depths of the grave. Proverbs 9, 13 through 18, if you're taking notes. <clears throat> So one writer said Joseph's assets are working against him here in that he is well-built and handsome. Uh, the Bible calls three men beautiful. 
David, Absalom, and Joseph. Now, uh, he's a good-looking guy. And by the way, so is she. She's a good-looking gal. A man of Potiphar's influence and affluence. Um, he has an attractive woman at his side. And sometimes they're called trophy wives, right? Uh, for this story, the truth to be driven home, the point of Joseph's character, she's beautiful and she's desirable and he's tempted. He's a man. He has a sinful nature. And so these things are realities that we have to factor into the story so that we get the wow. Satan's done his homework and he's kind of using Joseph's vulnerable, compromised emotional state uh, to strike. Joseph's been treated treacherously. He's wounded and betrayed by his family. He's experienced terrible stinging injustice. He's frustrated. I'm sure he was angry uh, many times. He's isolated from his family. He's isolated from the worship community. He's by himself. There's no singing praises with the people of God. No corporate worship. He's sad and lonely. What a better moment to comfort yourself, to escape little bit of the madness, drink in a little of the flattery, find a little pleasure, a little escape in an otherwise very sad and lonely existence. But thankfully it's not his focus. He counts his blessings. So he's not in, he doesn't live in the state of the past. He lets that which is behind him fade away at least he's working on it, right? And so, yeah, so she strikes and he's in a healthier place uh, spiritually because of where his mind's at uh, with, with living today in the mercies of God and not dwelling on his pain, his pain, his pain. Stop it. You're setting yourself up for a disaster. And so, you know, Instead of marking the dates on the calendars for all the anniversaries of your past pain and misfortune so that every year you have to take a week off because this is the week. How about just thinking just the opposite, my dear friends? I'm not mocking your pain or how deeply you were wounded. I'm saying the way you're handling it is not biblical and not healthy. So Joseph didn't do that, so he was set up. So when she said, lie with me, <laughs> he said, no. <laughs> Thankfully, um, he gives her some reasons here. Eight and nine. How could I do that to your husband? So Joseph's going to attempt to awaken some sense of decency. She is a human being, after all. There must be some rationality there, but to no avail. Uh, interestingly, Proverbs 6, verse 32 says about the one who commits adultery, the one who commits adultery lacks judgment. They are a fool. Whoever does so destroys himself. So what kind of person wants to make a choice that says, hmm, today, you know what I want? I want to ruin my life. And I want to, 
It's not a really smart person who does that, you know? They may be really good at math, but common sense is out the window. So uh, he, tries to, uh, he tries to help her see how morally reprehensible, especially in light of her husband's absolute trust and love for him, so he lays it out in all of his shamefulness. Uh, verse 8, he trusts me with everything. Verse 9, he promoted me above everybody in the house. Uh, further on, uh, he's withheld nothing from me except one thing, you. You're the only thing he wouldn't give me because apparently he loves you. Notice he identifies it for what it is, which is very helpful. He doesn't say, how could I have an affair with you? How could I commit an indiscretion? Or how, how can I have a little fling? No, he says, how could I do such a wicked thing? What a wicked thing. And we have all these nice flowery, flowery euphemisms, you know. No, he says, no, no. Uh, and here's setting us up for the whoosh. How can I do this evil and sin against your husband? No, sin against God. He switches the object of the would-be victim from Potiphar to God. Wow. Here's what he's saying. After all God's done for me, and part of what God's done for me is to give me your husband who loves me and trusts me with his life. Well, how could I reward God for saving me and helping me and loving and lavishing upon me these mercies by taking out a knife and going whack to God who blesses me? Charles Spurgeon said this, when I regarded God as a tyrant in my thinking, I thought little of sin. I found it easy to sin. But when I came to know him as father, so kind and good and merciful, overflowing with compassion, I beat my chest with utmost grief that I could have ever rebelled against one who loves me so and has my highest good at heart. Yeah, every sin is kind of like that. Every sin that we commit knowingly is just looking at God in Jesus' face and poking him right in the eye. Yeah. Well, yeah. He forgives us, right? So come on. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. <laughs> A amen to your groan, sir. <laughs> Verse 10. So what is her response to how could I? How could I? How could we? How could you? How could uh, you know what is she? Well, Mrs. Potiphar felt deep remorse, weeps for her shame, asked God to forgive her, and then called out, called off her wicked pursuit. Not. <laughs> no, she couldn't see the truth, even though it was right in front of her face because she had too much mascara on. <laughs> She's working the lashes, man. She's working those lashes. But guess what? Jess is not falling for it. Instead, of calling off her chase, she ramps it up. Verse 11. One day, one day, one day comes to us all. One day. 
He went into the house to attend to his duties. And none of the household servants were inside. What a coincidence, Satan. Verse 12, she caught him by the cloak, his robe. Those are his clothes. Come to bed with me for the 1,000th time. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand, I got it, and had to run out of the house in his underwear, verse 14, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, oh, this Hebrew, the race card always, uh, has been brought to us to make sport of us. Oh, he's just having a time of it, isn't he? He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until Mr. Potiphar came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. All right, out in the frying pan into the fire. So uh, Joseph has found favor, he's found temptation, and now he finds a way of escape. That's a promise in God's word. Every single time with a temptation, every single time, you may cover your eyes and say, I don't see it, but there's always a way out. Every single time, promise of God. First um, Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Uh, time for some turbulent setbacks to the story, which is a normative part of the Christian experience. So when it seems to you and to me like God's <laughs> failed on his part to deliver the goods, it's an awesome opportunity for God to increase our faith, polish out character flaws, teach us endurance. Uh, not to mention it allows him time to get people and circumstances all lined up for his will. So just always know, I thought you, I thought this was going to happen. And then there's a setback. Usually there is. There's always sort of a death to a vision. And then he's doing deeper work in our hearts and lives. Uh, one writer said, when God gives wonderful promises of future blessing, the journey to that place of blessing may not always seem so wonderful. So uh, yeah, so that's part of the storyline, that no matter what the enemy <laughs> tries to do, uh, God's will and purpose for our lives uh, will not be deterred. I love what Job said in chapter 42 and verse 2. Uh, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, I'm convinced you can do anything, God, and nothing and nobody is going to stop you. So setbacks only prove God's power and uh, that he's true and, uh, and it makes the end result even more sweet. So don't worry about your setbacks. Stop it. Stop it. Let, let's take a closer look at how he handles this horrible uh, thing there. So I've been saying to you, please uh, don't make him an unfeeling, unrealistic Bible hero with no uh, sin nature. Uh, he has a sin nature. He's a man. She's beautiful. They have a friendship. They've worked together for up to 11 years. Uh, she has redeemable qualities, as every sinner does. So yes, he's tempted. 
And, and do you ever despise the very thing that you end up doing? Yeah, so maybe he does despise her most of the time, just like you most of the time. And then that's, there's that one time that you don't mind it so much. So one day, one day, the Bible calls that day the day of evil. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 says this, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Put it on so that you can overcome the devil's scheme. So that when, not if, that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. So apparently not all days, including this one, are created equal. The day of evil defined is this. It's when good and evil lie right before you. The crossroads right in front of you. You have to choose. And your choice determines the trajectory of your life. Everything's depending on that choice. And of course, the day of evil doesn't play fair. Oh, it doesn't play fair. We all think, you know, even in Darth Vader, uh, Darth Vader has something in there, you know, in the movies, even, even the most wicked villain, somehow we're like, there it is. There's a spark. There's something there. Oh, not so with the devil. Not one drop of mercy. Not one drop of compassion. Oh, man. So, yeah, that, uh, evil doesn't play fair. It comes when you're down and out, when you're at your worst, your weakest, your most vulnerable. Listen, that's how it is. It's when all the planets have lined up in a bad way, if I can say that, and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it's the wrong kind of sin for you, and boom. It's like when the devil asks permission to sift you like wheat. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he looked at Peter, and Peter's like, I'll never leave you. I don't care if everybody at this table abandons you. I won't. He says, Simon... Simon, Satan has asked me for permission to sift you like wheat. That means to put you in the sifter and see what you're made of, to test you, hoping that you're going to implode. And he did implode. He came back. That's the day of evil. It's the day you're sifted right there, and we're going to find out in front of God and everybody your character. Are you all that you claim to be? Or just working on it? Or not at all? So there it is, the perfect moment. The house is uncomfortably quiet because nobody's there, and it's just her and him. And that's how it goes. So for Mrs. P., um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's all about the challenge. It's the conquest. She doesn't care about him at all. At all. Look good. She just charged him with a capital offense. She wants him dead. She's going to want him dead. So uh, if Joseph had caved, you could bet that he would have been sent to the gallows the very next day. Because it was for her, it's the conquest. How dare you tell me no? I will get what I want. And then when I'm done, off with your head. So, well, what do you do when, you're, when things get out of hand? Joseph's like, he did the right thing. When the house catches on fire, no more time for lectures or, or trying to stir somebody's conscience or let's talk about this. Can we pray? Yeah, no. 
He just ran. He ran for his life. It's time to get out of there. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and run toward righteousness, faith, and love, and peace with all those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. And so he flees. She's got the robe. <laughs> As I said, I only tell you, the commentators say, he, he, he's in his undergarments. And uh, so how is she going to explain this? You know, well, hell hath no fury like a woman. Yeah, and scorned she was to the seventh degree. Uh, and so she's got the perfect plan. She's got the clothes. <laughs> she's going to accuse him of attempted rape. And hopefully he'll get the death penalty. He attacked me. I screamed for help. Read the verses there. He fled. Thank the sun god. I'm safe. You know, so she wants him dead. What a relief, she's thinking. Finally, get this guy out of here. Kill him. Better than having to see him every day remind me of what I can't have and what he doesn't want. (laughs) Teach him to say no to me. And so let's finish up. Here's what happens when Mr. Potiphar gets home. He hears the story from his loving, adoring wife. This is how your slave treated me, your slave. He burned with anger when he heard that. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. A little interesting wording there that's kind of hinting what's going on. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. Another hint. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord, guess what, (laughs) was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor. Oh, what's up with that in the eyes of the prison warden? So the warden put, uh, familiar words here, the warden puts Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. He's the new warden, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. So now the warden's kicking back with not much to do because Joseph's doing the job. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. When a Bible translation, such as the NIV, capitalizes the word Lord, it's telling you it's using uh, Yahweh. There are many words for Lord. So this is his personal I am, who I am name. The name he wants to be known by through all generations. And so uh, with that, Joseph now finds (laughs) a new place to serve. The dungeon. It's, it, it's really hard <laughs> to when you're obeying God and doing the right thing and then you get nailed for it. That's a real discipline. And uh, you've got to have a lot of faith there. Uh, but it's kind of how it goes. So Potiphar comes home and notice uh, when, uh, when her husband returns home, she's careful to avoid using his name. We don't want to make him a human being, Joseph your friend, the guy you love and trust. We don't want to put a face there and the memory of his stellar reputation. We're going to call him a Hebrew, an outsider, and a slave. Okay, so that's what she's trying to do. Your slave did this to me. Poor Joseph. He'd been through a lot. (laughs) Well, we can only imagine his pain and grief being accused of such, such an outrageous lie. 
his good reputation tarnished and, and his heart's broken because everybody's going to say, oh yeah, praise that Yahweh. <laughs> praise that Yahweh. That's exactly what's going to happen. So like Christ, we don't hear him defending himself. He doesn't go on social media and post a reply, a response. You know, he doesn't do that. Like Jesus, who was uh, falsely accused and then before uh, his accusers was silent. And it seems to me, my wonderful Christian friends, that the normal Christian way to handle slander is to leave it to God. And let God defend you. There's always a place where God may lead you to let the facts be known. But nine times out of ten in my Christian experience of many years now, I find that it is wisest and most scriptural to not defend yourself. Especially when... uh, when there's no semblance of truth to it, and when it won't do much good, and sometimes will do uh, much harm as well. And so the Psalms are filled with David saying, I'm not going to say a word. You're my defender. I love this about Jesus. When they heaped abuse on him and falsely accused him, he did not retaliate. When he was suffered, he made no threats but entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly, 1 Peter 2 and 23. And then the Old Testament truth of this, beauty, no weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication from me, thus says God. (laughs) So here's the bottom line. God says, the truth will be known. Trust in me. Keep your heart soft. Keep it sweet with forgiveness. And let's go forward and trust him. So, uh, yeah, the truth will come out always. So uh, Potiphar's response, very interesting. Joseph's master here, instead of sending him to the gallows, look at the verses. He takes him and escorts him and puts him in the king's prison, which I read is much better treatment and a much nicer place to be. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. When he hears from his wife what happened, his wife is speaking. He's furious. Commentators. With whom? He knows what kind of man Joseph is. And sadly, he knows what kind of woman his wife is. Somebody's lying. He has to decide, is it Joseph or is it woman folly? He knows who it is. And so that's why Joseph doesn't get executed. And uh, not only uh, Potiphar knows, but everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows her. Everybody knows him. That's the advice I can give you, that people are smarter when you're slandered Somebody says something terrible about you, makes you look horrible, and you would, didn't do it this time. <laughs> right? <laughs> know this, know this. People are smarter than you think. They know the person who's saying bad stuff about you, and they know you. They're smart. 
They know. They may pretend like they're buying the victim story, but in the back of their mind, they're saying, ah, I think that's a little bit exaggerated, a little bit one-sided, and a little bit born of offense. Okay, so everybody knows, including the prison warden. Why else would he say, why don't you come out and be in charge? Why why don't you have the run of the whole place? I'm going to kick my feet up. In fact, I'm going on sabbatical. You're in charge of all the prisoners, you who are being accused of attempted rape of the captain of the guard's wife. Let's just let you out and run the place. Oh, no. When word got out that he let Joseph out and he said, Joseph, you can have just about my job. Nobody cared because everybody knew that Joseph was innocent and Potiphar's wife was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yes. So there. Let's wrap up with this, 22 and 23. There he goes again. Oh, man, he could have gone in and said, God, I trusted you in the field. I trusted you when we first got to Egypt. I trusted you in Potiphar's house when they had me mugging out the stalls. And I did everything right, and I sucked it all down, and I ate the dirt, and I ate humble pie. And now this, I'm done. Could have. Some Christians do. But not him. He's like, let's do this. Let's start. He woke up in the morning. Hey, warden, anything I can do for you to help? You know? Oh, well, you know, I heard you're pretty good at X, Y, and Z. Come on out and do X, Y, and Z. And while you're doing it, do A through Z as well. And so that's it. So listen, the way up, the way down when God is humbling us and allowing humbling circumstances to happen, an elevator door will always open with the right attitude. <laughs> And somebody will be there and say, going up. And when you have humbled your heart and you've laid it out before God and you say, I I belong to you. Let's do this, God. I will serve you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. The answer to going up is always yes, going up. Let's pray together. Father God, we know that you plan to Exalt us in due time. You say suffering and humbling ourselves that we should embrace that time that and wait on the Lord and that Lord you will come and you will lift us up at the perfect time. Help us to wait on you, to know God that, that you're just with us. You never have forsaken us. You've never, none of your promises have, have uh, failed You're in the process of working, God. Help us to look back and realize, boy, you've never left our side. You've always been with us. You're for us, not against us. And you said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. We thank you for these great and precious promises in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.